Housing affordability is one of those issues that politicians love talking about and appearing to do something about without actually doing it. Because making houses more affordable means making them go down in price. And there are more people who already own houses than are trying to buy one. As a result, there's more manure being shoveled on this subject than perhaps any other. So I thought this week's Spotlight interview should be an attempt to deal with the facts of the matter. And who best to ask than John Daly of the Grattan Institute, who always deals with the facts of any matter he looks at. I started by asking him, how big is the problem of housing affordability? I think you have to break that problem down to understand when we complain about housing affordability, what exactly are we saying? Uh, So if you, for example, look at how much people are spending paying the interest on their mortgage, it's higher than it was in the 1980s, but it's not particularly high by historical standards. It's about where it was back in 2003, and it's indeed been higher for most of the period in between. But of course, what is hurting uh, is that house prices relative to incomes are very high, and therefore the cost of paying back the principal Uh, as a percentage of people's incomes, is higher than it used to be. And also because wage growth is very low, nominal wages are not eroding that principle very fast. Uh, And so it's taking people a long time to pay back the principle on their house. Do you think the repayment of principle is a bigger issue than the saving for deposit? I think it probably is. Um, Although it's harder to save for a deposit than it used to be, um, banks are also more prepared to lend money to you if you've only got a 10% deposit when, you know, 15 or 20 years ago, they were much more insistent on a 20% deposit. So although it is harder to get to your 20% deposit, that matters less. I think that the real issue is people understand exactly how high how high house prices are relative to their incomes. They can see how long it's going to take them to pay off the principal. And consequently, we see these very rapidly falling rates of home ownership amongst younger homeowners. And a rapid increase in interest-only loans. Indeed, although I think that's being driven by something different. I think what's driven interest-only loans is essentially a fashion Um, which is that banks started to offer these things to um, owner-occupiers, which they didn't in the past. Owner-occupiers got advised by mortgage brokers to say, look, it gives you a whole pile of flexibility. You can keep paying off the principal anyway. You're just putting it into your offset account. If the bank's going to offer you an interest-only loan for the same price that they would offer you principal and interest loan, well, you might as well take it and you've got extra flexibility. Oh, and by the way, because you effectively then will often take out a larger loan, put some of the money straight into the offset account, um, I, as the mortgage broker, will get a bigger commission. Mortgage brokers wound up with big incentives to um, encourage these things as well. So looking at all the data and the facts of the matter, do you think that uh, housing affordability has become a beat-up? No, I don't think it's a beat-up. I mean, one, we can see that it's much harder to pay off a house than it used to be. We can see that home ownership rates are falling for essentially all age groups under the age of 55. We can see that for people who are taking on a loan today, it's only cheap paying off the mortgage, or not even cheap, it's only reasonable paying off the mortgage because interest rates are very low by historic standards. As uh, Andy Haldane, the Bank of England, pointed out in a very famous paper, uh, they're at their lowest in at least 5,000 years. Uh, And if we just get a two percentage point increase in interest rates, then paying off the mortgage will be more expensive than it's been at basically any time in uh, Australian financial history. So households are taking on a huge amount of risk. And of course, that rise in interest rates might be because the Reserve Bank moves interest rates up, but could also be because global interest rates move, 
Australian banks have to start paying more and they essentially pass that cost on. There's any number of reasons that could push up interest rates. And so that's, I think, the thing that's really playing on a lot of households' minds is that they are taking on a lot of vulnerability. The other issue is that precisely because of that, if there is any increase in the in interest rates, that will immediately translate into households spending less and will immediately then translate uh, into slower economic growth. And that's certainly one of the things that's on the Reserve Bank's mind. Uh, if you look at some of their recent speeches, they're worried about the state of the housing market, not because they're worried that the banks will get themselves into trouble and fall over, but they're worried that households are... Um, so highly leveraged and uh, that, that if a relatively small movement in interest rates will translate into quite a large fall uh, in household spending. In fact, the Reserve Bank revealed in its financial stability report that 30% of household borrowers have no buffer or at least or less than a month buffer. Well, that was the headline. Of course, if you actually look at the chart, what it shows is that that's been the case for a very long time. And in fact, the number of households with a buffer has in fact increased slightly over time. Um, Oh, I looked at that. I didn't see that. There you go. It does show that you know households vulnerable. What it really shows, I think, is um, this relatively small potential increase in interest rates does leave a lot of households exposed. In a world when a third of households uh, haven't got a buffer but interest rates are falling, then you can be pretty relaxed. In a world in which a third of households haven't got a buffer and there's a reasonable chance that at some stage interest rates are going to go up, that leaves you a lot more nervous. So you've been examining all of the proposals to improve housing affordability. Obviously, it's become a very political issue. And um, in fact, at one point, the Treasurer said it was going to be the centrepiece of the budget, although he denied that to me last week and said he never said that. But it's no longer the centrepiece and other things are. But anyway, they certainly have lots of proposals and you've examined them and found that most of them would make matters worse. Yeah, I mean, in summary, the problem here is that all of the things that would actually make a real difference are politically very hard. And all of the things that are politically easy are not going to make any real difference. Uh, indeed, those cosmetic changes that are politically easy fall into two categories. There's ones that are cosmetic and mostly harmless, and there's ones that are cosmetic and counterproductive. So uh, into that latter category, I put all of the proposals that for first home buyers grants, first home buyers savings accounts, first home buyers using their pension, uh, using their superannuation account, whatever it might be, all of them will actually cost the budget a lot of money and won't make any real difference to housing affordability because, as we've learned over the last 20 years, they just get built into the price. So really, they just transfer money from taxpayers to existing homeowners who get paid more for their houses. And we can you know, tax foreign owners a bit more and we can charge them more to apply to buy a house, but it's not going to make a really big difference um, to affordability. The things that will make a difference on the demand side are things that, by and large, the Commonwealth can do. So in terms of uh, reducing the capital gains tax discount, limiting negative gearing, those kinds of changes, they will have an effect, not a huge effect, but at least it will be in the right direction. It will save the budget a lot of money. It does seem like they're not going to touch negative gearing for political reasons. Uh, I think that's right. They've kind of boxed themselves into a corner given their positioning relative to the ALP. There's still a chance that they might have a look at capital gains tax, which, of course, is in fact the larger reform, makes more of a difference to the budget and it makes more of a difference to housing affordability. Uh, but for some reason, it's just less politically salient. So there's a chance that they could move on that. And then, of course, the other things that would make a really big difference over the long run uh, are around supply. Uh, and that's by and large a state government problem. 
So they can make it easier to subdivide um, land in the middle rings of our suburbs. That's, in fact, a really big reform. Very good paper um, by SGS recently that demonstrates how Australia's middle ring suburbs are much less dense than most other large cities around the world. What do you define as a middle ring suburb? So in Melbourne, we're thinking about the Glen Irises of this world. In Sydney, we're you know thinking about the Mossmans of this world. So these are things that are within you know, 10, 15 kilometres of the CBD. By and large, they tend to have very good existing transport links. Uh, by and large, they're full of not quarter-acre blocks, that's actually a bit of an urban myth, but one-sixth, one-eighth acre blocks, um, which is what a lot of the standard subdivisions were um, back when these places were subdivided. Uh, most of them have you know, a large house with quite a lot of garden around them. Uh, and you know, most of those places could very easily be subdivided into very pleasant two-storey townhouses, the kind of thing that, you know, in effect, people pay a lot of money in Paddington and, and Carlton for, but at densities that would, in effect, mean that on an existing plot of land, you'd get at least four dwellings, possibly six. I thought there was a fair bit of that going on already. There's some of that going on, but not at a particularly high rate. And, and as I said, Australian suburbs remain not very dense by global standards. And if you look at the change in density in Melbourne and Sydney in these middle suburbs over a 30-year period, it's very small, as we document um, in our articles. So there is a long way to go. Um, We can keep building inner-city apartments, but inherently there's not actually that much land on which you can do that. And so you can keep going with that, but it's not going to make a huge difference to housing supply in the long run. Uh, And then you can also look at increasing density along the transport corridors, so along major roads, rail lines, moving, uh, changing the planning regulations so that it's easier to build those up to sort of four, six storeys. And we've seen quite a lot of that in Melbourne. And the recent train index suggests that there's a lot of it happening in Sydney. And as people like Rob Adams have demonstrated, you can actually get a very substantial increase in dwelling numbers focusing on those transport corridors. So those are the three big things I would say that, that states can do around supply. In the long run, those are the things that will make a really big difference. Uh, But, of course, because we're in a world in which the Commonwealth basically can affect demand and the states can affect supply, not not surprisingly, the Commonwealth says it's a supply problem uh, and the states say it's a demand problem. And, of course, the truth, as always, is both. What do you think about incentives for downsizing? I think that this would essentially be a waste of budgetary money. And why do I think that? Because when you look at the evidence, the Productivity Commission's looked at this. There's a couple of a good study by um, CEPAR, are looking at this, the financial consequences of downsizing are usually the last thing on a downsizer's mind. Uh, the things that go into the decision to downsize are, I'm struggling to keep up a house this large, I don't want to live with the maintenance anymore, I don't want to deal with the garden, all of those kind of essentially emotional considerations. And on the other side, it's all about you know, why I don't move is I can't find a smaller house in the same rough location that my existing house is, that's a really big deal, not surprisingly. Um, I don't want to deal with the emotional wrench of living of leaving a house that I've lived in for a very long time. I don't want to deal with the emotional turmoil of packing everything up. Those emotional considerations tend to be the big things in people's decision and exactly how much pension they're going to get afterwards, uh, the evidence suggests is very small in the scheme of things. So if you provide an incentive for downsizers, That's terrific for anyone who's downsizing, but it's not actually going to change the number of people who downsize materially. Uh, And, of course, you're going to wind up giving the uh, benefit to everybody who downsizes, 
most of whom would have downsized already. So whether you're going to provide those incentives to say, well, this won't affect your pension, or whether you're going to give it to people to say, well, having set a very generous $1.6 million cap for your superannuation, we're now going to effectively increase that cap. Either way, you will be spending a lot of money on the budget for very little impact on uh, housing affordability, although I dare say it'll be terrific for people over the age of 65. I suppose uh, it's fair to say that uh, a little impact and wasting money is not always something that determines that something's not going to be in the budget. So it's possible, it's possibly going to be there. Well, I think it falls into that category of politically easy, cosmetic and counterproductive. As you've pointed out, the Treasurer is also interested in um, uh, bond aggregators for social housing. Perhaps you could explain what that means and and is it a return to some kind of housing commission uh, situation as we used to have? So the idea of a bond aggregator is that at the moment if you're a... uh, housing association and you want to essentially borrow some money to put up a new set of units that will be used for social housing, um, uh, you have to go and borrow as a housing association. You're a relatively small organisation. In the scheme of things, you'll pay you know, quite a material amount in interest costs for that borrowing. Um, the bank will charge you quite a high rate. The idea of a bond aggregator is that instead, uh, in essence, the Commonwealth would take on the risk of those loans and uh, the money would be borrowed at the Commonwealth's bond rate, which is typically at least one percentage point lower than the cost of borrowing for these housing associations. Now, that will without doubt help. If you take one percentage point off the borrowing costs of an investment, then obviously you make it a more attractive investment. The problem is that it's not going to be enough. Um, Even if the typical housing association is getting the land for nothing, and that's a brave assumption, but it's actually not entirely reasonable, often church groups, other not-for-profit groups, do have uh, existing land that they are prepared to give to housing associations to build social housing on. Even if you're getting the land for nothing, the cost of just building the units, so the cost of the improvements, uh, will not be covered by the uh, Commonwealth rent assistance uh, and the amount that you can charge in rent to people on uh, social welfare payments. Uh, And so even with a lower cost of borrowing, Community housing associations most of the time will not be able to afford to build new supply unless someone, and someone is probably going to have to be government, is also, in addition to the bond aggregator, putting money on the table. And I think one of the big concerns is that the Commonwealth will set up a bond aggregator but then put less money into new social housing through the National Housing Agreement. So although a bond aggregator is a good idea uh, and it doesn't really cost the government anything much uh, and it does help, uh, it won't be enough to increase the supply of social housing unless governments also put substantially more money on the table. And one of the problems, of course, is that the um, increase in social housing, uh, the stock of social housing, has been nothing like as fast as population increase over the last 10 to 15 years. Uh, And consequently, we're seeing um, much greater pressure from people who clearly are in very difficult circumstances, trying to compete for effectively a shrinking number of social housing bases. And that means that we're trying to make very difficult decisions in practice between essentially homeless people as to who is going to get social housing instead of having enough stock that we can readily house everyone who is in really serious trouble and also house a number of people, you know, who would otherwise find it very difficult to make ends meet. 
It also feels like that's a slightly different problem to housing affordability, which is the difficulty in buying a house. I mean, what we're talking about there is rental supply, uh, and in particular, as you say, for for near homeless people. So that's a that's a sort of a, a social welfare issue, isn't it? Uh, that's exactly right. Although it's a substantial issue, and and of course, one of the reasons that it gets confused is that that um, housing for people um, uh, at the lower end of the income distribution. Some of it's labelled social housing. Um, that means very heavily subsidised, in effect, by government. Some of it is labelled affordable housing, uh, which has a very technical definition about the limit of, of your income. And essentially, uh, state governments and, and these housing associations effectively subsidise the rent for people on low incomes. Um, uh, and it's labelled as affordable housing. Uh, and as you point out, that's not to be confused with housing affordability, which is making houses um, uh, less expensive to buy um, for people who don't qualify for those programs, who have you know, median incomes, um, but are finding it very difficult to get into the housing market at current prices. Looking at the whole situation, as you've done, John, does it leave you, and given the difficulty in getting sort of effective things achieved and the ease with which you can get ineffective things achieved, does it leave you worried about the future, which will obviously contain higher interest rates, are you worried about that? Hey, look, at the point that the Reserve Bank is quietly ringing alarm bells, I think you ought to be worried. So, yes, I'm worried about the macroeconomic vulnerabilities. Yes, I'm worried about the vulnerabilities that households are getting themselves into. I'm really worried about the way that we are locking a younger generation, or at least a large part of a younger generation, out of the housing market. Um, that's translating into uh, increasing disparity between generations in terms of their wealth. Essentially, people who bought houses before 2000, the year 2000 have done really nicely. People who bought houses in the last five years are going to struggle to build anything like the same amount of wealth. And that intergenerational wealth inequality uh, will translate into inequality within generations because essentially the only people who get ahead are people who've got parents who happen to be wealthy. And, you know, I'd rather be part of a society in which people you know, become wealthy because of the sweat of their brow rather than because they happen to have the right parents. So I'm worried for that reason. I'm worried because people on lower incomes who used to be able to buy their own house are now essentially forced to rent, and renting is much less attractive than home ownership given the way that our rental market is set up in Australia. There's any number of reasons to be worried, and as you say, governments for a long time have been avoiding the hard decisions. Now, that said, I remain you know, someone who's got quite a lot of faith about Australian democracy in the long run. Six years ago, uh, a Grattan Institute saw Les Lake was banging on about negative gearing and uh, a lot of people thought that he was tilting at windmills and it was a waste of time. And, you know, six or seven years down the track, we have an opposition that's put up a full-blown policy on changing negative gearing and capital gains tax. And as far as I can make out, as probably won votes for doing so rather than lost votes. So that's progress, and it's progress because public opinion changed. I think the next thing to change public opinion on is this issue around the middle ring and making it easier to subdivide. And, of course, everyone agrees that's a good, good idea so long as it happens in the suburb next to theirs. One of the things that might change that is that, you know, there's a generation of baby boomers living in these houses. Historically, they have been uh, one of the strongest lobby groups opposing subdivision, they're, of course, all now looking to downsize in basically their location and looking around and going, but there's no medium density housing in my suburb uh, and I want to downsize into something in my suburb. 
And so I think one of the things that, that might change the equation here uh, is a generation of hi- older homeowners who suddenly realise that promoting medium density in their suburb might be quite a good idea because they want to move into it. They're also getting tapped by their children saying, please help me buy a house. Indeed. And they're only going to find it affordable for their children to buy houses if we do substantially increase supply. And that means, you know, amongst other things, but it's probably the largest single lever, looking at the density of these existing suburbs. I suppose in a macro sense, the worry is that the economy generally is now much more vulnerable than usual to an increase in interest rates, which is probably inevitable. It's certainly a lot more vulnerable, and uh, there's a limit to how low interest rates can go. Uh, And although there's lots of people coming up with lots of theories as to why interest rates are so low globally, and theories as to why they might stay low for an extended period of time, uh, there's also no one who's got a particularly good theory about how we go from a period of low, very, very low interest rates historically to, quote, normal rates without a lot of pain in terms of getting from here to there. So we, and for that matter, the entirety of the global economy, are a lot more vulnerable than we used to be um, because of these very unusually low interest rates, which has been translated into very high asset prices. Just finally, on the subject of intergenerational equity, my friend Bob Gottliebson says that really you should see housing ownership and superannuation, you know, retirement income, almost as a single packet of stuff. Therefore, he says you should allow young people to assign part of their superannuation to paying for a house because what you don't want is when you retire to be renting rather than owning. You'd rather have some of your uh, superannuation having gone to ensure that you own a house rather than getting compound interest. There is some truth to that, isn't there? I mean, the, 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 the part of the problem is that this generation will, if they don't buy a house, end up renting in retirement, which is the last thing you want to do. Uh, that's right. But of course, this is a zero-sum game unless you increase supply. So if you simply allow people to use their super for housing, uh, chances are what that will do is largely bid the price up. So they'll wind up paying more for housing than they would have otherwise. They will have less in their super when they retire. They will wind up drawing a larger pension than they would otherwise. It's not a free lunch, and that's the fundamental problem. But it will largely go into increasing house prices, and that means that you know people will have less money in total when they retire, in effect, and the people who will really benefit are the people who are selling the houses to them, so they're the people who are already close to retirement and doing quite nicely, thank you very much. So I understand the attraction of it, and and obviously if you are going to be retiring, you would rather be owning your own house than not, but if you are doing that at the expense of reducing your super and at the expense of pushing up house prices in the process, we'd suggest that that's counterproductive and of course it will effectively leave governments with a bigger bill in the long run, because governments will have bigger pensions to pay in the long run. I've been talking to John Daly, head of the Grattan Institute.